Hello, welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Uh, each week, Kavita and I are going to talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. We hope you like the show. We'd love to hear your feedback as we continue to shape it as we move forward. So if you have any comments of any sort, feel free to send us an email at podcasts at the dsrnetwork.com. Now, on with the show. This week, we're turning our attention to the Supreme Court. There's a whole lot going on, obviously, with all of the January 6th hearings, with so much occurring in the economy in Ukraine and elsewhere, but it's a pivotal week for the Supreme Court, and that means it's going to be a pivotal week for our daily lives in so many ways. Uh, let's start with uh, guns, as the Senate is moving closer to passing bipartisan gun legislation, although the House may not agree. We're reminded of Justice Warren Burgers. That was Chief Justice Warren Burgers' blistering assessment of the Second Amendment. If I were writing the Bill of Rights now, there wouldn't be any such thing as the Second Amendment. Which says? That uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the defense of the state, the people's rights to bear arms. This has been the subject of one of the greatest pieces of fraud. I repeat the word fraud on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime. So, Kavita, we have seen a dramatic turnaround in the way that the Supreme Court views the Second Amendment from the time back when uh, Warren Burger was Chief Justice. And let's remember that Warren Burger was a very conservative Republican Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. But his assessment there, um, which is something that a whole lot of historians and others would agree with, is that the Second Amendment itself was all about and based upon that first clause in the Constitution about a well-regulated militia being necessary for uh, the good of the country. We're in a very different place now. Yeah, absolutely, Norm. And I think what's interesting is, that, you know, I, Warren Berger in just like the history books, and, and I'll just say, I'll repeat a little bit of the words because I think they're so profound to your point. In the history books, you know, the Berger court was kind of this bridge court, this kind of bridge from conservatism to the liberalism of Ren from Rehnquist uh, down. And I think this is uh, a very interesting moment that largely gets forgotten. And I just want to repeat a, a phrase. Sometimes his words just get mashed together but it is incredibly clear in the clip that we just had that it refuted the very language of the Second Amendment. Second Amendment refutes any argument that it was intended to guarantee every citizen an unfettered right to any kind of weapon he or she desires. This is actually from an opinion piece that Berger wrote in the Associated Press. We'll link to it in our web episode. But it's just profound that it's not just in the clip we showed time and time again. It's not one time and one off, uh, but Berger has made this very clear in several points in time, in several, many settings about his sentiment, yet somehow, given his role, given the importance of his court and so many other decisions, Roe v. Wade, the more you unpack, you start to see how we move from this kind of, kind of strict interpretation of the Constitution, which is technically what conservatives had desired for so long, to a shift in 
well, we don't really want you to interpret the Constitution the way that, that the forefathers intended. Here's how we want to interpret the Constitution. And I'll add to it, we'll talk about guns, and I think you've got some provocative clips for our audience to hear specifically from Senator, uh, from Senator Collins, but without ruining that. I think it's also fascinating. There's some other Supreme Court decisions, not just on guns and Roe v. Wade. Um, there was a recent decision around dialysis that actually allows for private insurers to limit um, the access to dialysis. These are the kinds of court decisions that, had there not been this other level of what I would call court chaos, would truly get like front page headline news because they are such a, a shock to what we have always understood the intentions of the court were, but not just the Supreme Court, but federal and kind of local courts, but then also how this has impacted so many aspects of our society that most Americans won't understand. I think that's something we're trying to, one, one thing we're trying to do is literally supply anybody listening with a way to connect how these decisions that seem so ephemeral in many regards have such a profound impact. This one being, the, the one on guns that we're waiting for being a very critical one, but how also this will impact access, not just to reproductive rights, but access to other basic health services. How will that then turn into a slippery slope, Norman, about how does this access, for example, mental health rights, mental health access, something you and I both care about passionately. Every aspect of um, our lives are literally on a chopping block, if you will. And I don't think I've ever witnessed that. And I've tried to look back in history for another moment in time in the last six decades. And I, I can't think of one. If, I, I don't know if you can. No, I, I can't. And uh, there are many things that flow from this. And uh, we'll get into the specifics of guns in a minute. But as I you know, watched Warren Berger again, it reminded me of something else that I think is uh, a, a broader point about this court that we will come back to uh, before we're done with, uh, with this show. Uh, Warren Berger uh, had one of his dearest friends on the court with him, Harry Blackman, mm -hmm. and they used to call them the Minnesota Twins. Uh, but their uh, friendship um, became uh, very much strained, uh, if not eliminated, over time as Harry Blackman, who came onto the court as a conservative uh, in the same mold as Warren Berger, began to change. And of course, it was Blackman who authored the uh, Roe v. Wade decision. Right. And it was based in significant part on the fact that back in Minnesota, he had been counsel to the Mayo Clinic and uh, consulted with a lot of physicians and otherwise. But it was the, the fact that Harry Blackman, picked by a Republican president to be a reliable conservative, altered uh, his, the way he looked at the world. Being on the court, I think, being on the Supreme Court made a huge difference for him. He saw it as having this enormous power over people's lives, and, and he let his inner compassion out. And that was followed by David Souter, uh, also seen as a betrayal. And what we've seen since is that when Republicans go to fill vacancies on the court, whether they are legitimate vacancies uh, when they're actually holding the presidency and something happens, um, or illegitimate ones, uh, the way they manipulated uh, to get both uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch uh, and uh, Amy Coney Barrett on the court. But in every instance, they're looking in only one place, and that is appeals courts 
where mm-hmm. people who have come through the Federalist Society boot camp, who have done decision after decision, are reliable. They are not going to change the way they look at the world. And that is what triggered as much as anything the remarkable transformation of the court into one where, despite the protestations of uh, Clarence Thomas and Amy Coney Barrett, that they're not a bunch of partisan hacks, um, they are radical and they are partisan, and it's altered the nature of the court. Uh, Now, with that, we have a critical decision that's going to be coming down, if not today, uh, very, very soon, next week, perhaps. It's uh, what's known as the Bruin decision. It's about a New York case. New York has a statute that says if you have a gun in your house, if you want to carry it outside, you have to get a permit that shows you have a reason to have a gun outside. Mm -hmm. And it was challenged by people who were denied the permits because they had no legitimate reason. And this is an opportunity for the court to take what was a pretty radical decision itself, one that showed that strict uh, constructionism has no meaning, it's all about what you want, uh, the Heller decision, and move it even further uh, to the radical right. I think uh, one of the things that for for me is coming up with the lack of uh, understanding of what an impact this will have has been will, it's come up certainly in Senate discussions, because obviously the Senate is aware that this will come down, and I think opinions that this will come down on the side of making it more difficult to kind of curb um, any, curb limits to guns, to act, to, sorry, to promote limits to guns that curb access to guns. And I do think that this is a very, I just, it's, it's one of many like kind of somber um, opinions. And I'm curious, do you have a sense from listening? I was re-listening to some of the oral arguments from before uh, when the courts was, were hearing this. And it was interesting hearing, actually, it was interesting not, like, not hearing from Gorsuch and not hearing much out of the more junior justices. Um, how do you think, if anything, given what we've learned a little bit about um, Jenny Thomas's involvement, and we'll soon learn more, how in any way do you think that uh, if you now sit back, think about the involvement of Jenny Thomas and January 6th and some of what has happened, very different matter from guns, but it just, there's so much uh, taint on the court itself. And then if you listen to um, Nina Totenberg, who I do on NPR, because she seems to be at least one of the few people that's a bit of a Supreme Court savant and, and has a pulse on what's happening inside the court, she describes almost down to a day this tenor where the justices for the first time have, have kind of turned on each other. And if you've read the nine and, and other books kind of written about the justices, you know that there's a surface appearance, but there's a kind of an implicit understanding. They all work together. They all trust each other. And they all kind of have this ability to disagree vehemently. I mean, Ginsburg was probably the eminent example, but to actually get work done. I feel like this is a shift at some point. And I do think that all of the decisions pending we have have only furthered kind of my notion that there's something broken about the court. And it reminds me also, I'm loading you with too many questions, but I reflect on how Kamala Harris and others have been kind of given this Supreme Court reform, um, you know, tasks with zero output and zero kind of, in my mind, I have yet to see anything productive coming out of those discussions, or even if they're having discussions to be candid. And it leaves me with only cynicism for any cases that come before. So how do we think about and reflect on what I feel like might be the first time in our lives 
that we can say the court is not only political, but more than that, Norm, it's broken. And that reflects, I mean, that is such a crevice in the Constitution that I don't think we can fill and I don't know how to overcome. How, how do you re react to some of that? For all outrageous things that Jenny Thomas has done, and we're going to learn a lot more about that, it's very clear that she was complicit in trying right. to get this, these phony slates of electors forward, exactly. that she was deeply engaged with the White House, probably directly with uh, President, then President Trump uh, right. in uh, to, uh, overturn the results of the election. Uh, but Justice Sotomayor uh, went out and talked about how Clarence Thomas is the nicest person on the right. court. Everybody right. there loves him that he knows the names of all the uh, janitors and the others working in the court. Right. He's warm and all of that. And it, it's, uh, it you know, made me think a little bit because we know that um, every one of these justices is desperate to preserve what their actual power is, which is only in the legitimacy of the institution itself, the mm -hmm. public accepting their decisions as legitimate. And that's why uh, Steyer wrote a book and has talked over and over about how they are, uh, you know, the court is not a political body. There are nine of them. They're there for decades. They don't want to, uh, you know, have deep personal divisions. But the tension level is extraordinary now. It's reflected in dissents that are fiery dissents. And when you have a Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who, who uh, when her nomination was announced, went to the White House for mm -hmm. a ceremony where the tape of it was used in a Trump political yeah. commercial before right. the election, was perfectly fine with being confirmed eight days before the presidential election. And then, as a justice, goes to Kentucky with Mitch McConnell to his institute, and it's there, standing next to Mitch McConnell, who manipulated the process to jam through her confirmation, breaking every norm, says, we're not a bunch of partisan hacks, proving that they're a bunch of partisan hacks. And <laughs> the fundamental legitimacy of the court is completely frayed right now. We're going to uh, talk in a few minutes about the abortion decision. But I was going back and looking at uh, some of the reactions in the court and outside to and from Chief Justice Roberts leaving this Texas abortion decision in place, even as they said there are really questions about its constitutionality, uh, when at the time, at least, Roe v. Wade was the law of the land. This was a direct and blatant violation of it, and they left it. It's been there for months now. It's had a profound effect on women and on families. And it's very, very clear that you have divisions. It's not that John Roberts is a moderate. He's desperately trying to make sure that the Roberts court in history goes down as you know, a reasonable court and not like the uh, court that did Plessy v. Ferguson. Uh, but he's joining with a lot of these radical decisions. Uh, and as he did, uh, you know, with some of the uh, more significant ones that have come down even in this last week. Uh, I don't see how the court recaptures its legitimacy in the short or medium term. And when yeah. we get to some of these decisions, 
you know, let me just talk for a minute about uh, the guns again. The, you know, the, the prevailing decision is the Heller one. And that's the one where uh, then Justice Scalia, basically the uh, sort of uh, ardent originalist, pretty much wrote out of the picture that clause about well-regulated militia and basically said there's an almost unfettered right for individuals to have guns. But in that decision also said that doesn't mean you can't regulate the process, the types of guns used, the kinds of people who are able to get or not able to get guns. And now we have this decision coming down that could take away some of those protections. And indeed, even as Congress is about to enact the first, if very limited, piece of legislation involving guns in the aftermath of the horrific shooting in Uvalde, uh, they could actually make a good part of that bipartisan agreement invalid with the decision that's about to come down. I, I want to also remind viewers, because you're talking about Heller and, and then just the Bruin cases, and we're, uh, I know that uh, literally on a daily basis, we're waiting to see when we'll hear from the Supreme Court. But even, even if, as, as I expect, the justices are trying to probably thread a needle with a you know, kind of they're dubious about the New York gun control law, but in the Bruin case, at least, and they're trying to mull kind of a narrow ruling. I think it's very interesting how much it goes back to, I, I come as a person who has like this more federal, um, federal viewpoint of things, how much, how, how much of our impression of states' rights plays heavily into the justices. And then as a contrast, as a contrast to that, I'm going to keep going back to, to Justice Warren Berger and not just Roe v. Wade, but the United States v. Nixon. I think about this a lot, given what we've heard with the January 6 hearings, how much um, it took for Berger on, on siding with the majority in Roe v. Wade, and then also in writing that unanimous opinion about Nixon not exerting executive privilege over tape recordings in the White House, and how, you know, what was it, 14 days, literally days after that decision, Nixon resigning. And I honest, honestly, Norm, just given everything we've talked about, think what would happen if it came to this court? And I don't, obviously it wouldn't be a unanimous. I just don't think it would be unanimous. And I truly, truly to this day, if, meaning if what we hear out of committee hearings and what gets kind of brought, what I assume will be Merrick Garland's kind of armament, what will be, you know, states of Georgia, Arizona. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that this, that what the public has been listening to becomes exactly what needs to happen for state level prosecutions for the Department of Justice. But I can't help but think that this, if this were, um, if this were U.S. v. Trump, you know, 2023, that I don't know that we would see the way the Burger Court responded. And that again, just painting a dismal cast on. I don't know. It's just a. It's it's a very. It's a very dismal prospect. And I do feel like Sonia Sotomayor's words. I will say this. I I literally when I heard the replay of of her words, thought, you know, what what knife is being held to like the back of her to do this? Other than other than the fact that this is such an important club that she's in, and there's this understanding, and it's obvious to everybody in the public how much Ginny Thomas, how much this process seems tainted, the leaks. And, and I yet at the same time think, how can she truly with a straight face say these things and mean it? I just can't believe it anymore. Um, so Norm, why don't we actually just get to Roe v. Wade? We've 
kind of alluded to yeah. it and I'm, I'm stuck on how broken our court is, but this just reflects even one more part of the process that I think is broken, which includes the Senate confirmation hearings. So here we have a clip where Senator Susan Collins from Maine suggested that both Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh misled Senate and specifically her on Roe v. Wade. Schumer also adding in that tr the Trump court appointees lied in their hearings all of which sounds nice and good, but let's just go ahead and listen to the actual clip with a quote from Susan Collins in May of 2022. Today, Senator Collins reacted to the news with a brief statement saying in part, quote, if this leaked draft opinion is the final decision and this reporting is accurate, it would be completely inconsistent with what Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh said in their hearings and in our meetings in my office, unquote. Okay, so this is very clearly, I think part of the abomination, I've now had about two plus decades of working with Susan Collins, and I have this love-hate relationship with her. Um, I love it when she votes on the things I want her to vote on, and I hate her when she doesn't, and I feel the same way about Murkowski, but I can't help, but man, Norm, I, I cannot help but think back to, uh, name every pivotal kind of time in the Senate where we needed her votes, everything from Balanced Budget Act all the way to you know, guns, reproductive justice, um, access to healthcare, ACA. And, and you, you kind of have this like, okay, Susan, you know, we really, you and Lisa Murkowski, at least we can somehow kind of convince you to, to try to hear out both sides. And, and this was one of the times where I knew as the judiciary hearings were going on with Senate confirmation, specifically with Kavanaugh, I think that was the most illustrative, that when Democrats and Republicans asked just Brett Kavanaugh about kind of Roe v. Wade, and he cited numerous times, you know, I haven't had an opinion about, I have not had a court case before me, I would have to look on the merits, et cetera, you know, but really dodge this and did, did mislead the Senate. I thought that was very obvious during his hearings and, and kept one, one of the other uh, people that didn't get enough attention was Murkowski, who also said that she was surprised by the draft decision. React to how this tense interplay with, are you kidding me? You know, how can senators be surprised by this leaked draft and the political theater of that? And a reflection then on even the confirmation hearings. I mean, all of this keeps going back to articles you've written, Norm, of the filibuster and how broken this is. So I will put that aside. But I am, I am, if I am listening to this and I am just trying to like, figure out, you know, is this going to drive voters to midterms? I hope so. How do I also think about the fact that um, you've got Collins, Murkowski, and frankly, a number of Democrats who didn't hold them to this, um, that allowed for these hearings to proceed as theater, knowing full well what would, what would happen. And the leaked draft was no surprise to me, but seems like, oh my goodness, how sensational this is. Just um, your thoughts and reactions to that. And then maybe one more point. I, I struggle a bit with, aside from filibuster reform, going back to Biden asking Kamala Harris to, or Biden asking for Supreme Court quote reforms to be looked at, what would we do? Would we add more members? No, I'm not sure that would do much. And there've been pros and cons to that. What can we do given what we've learned about how broken the process is? So in the short run, there's very little that can be done uh, without uh, enlarging the court. You know, the, uh, the court was packed by Mitch McConnell and Republicans. Uh, if we had a legitimate process in place that followed all the norms that we've seen in the past, uh, we would have 
five justices appointed by Democratic presidents, nominated by Democratic presidents, and four by Republican. Instead, we have six uh, Republicans and uh, three Democrats. And you can call them Republicans and Democrats because that's the way things have worked out. It's very different from what we saw decades ago where uh, there were nuanced differences in uh, what partisan presidents would pick, but now it's uh, a stark difference. Um, I would favor enlarging the court, uh, which would be restoring the balance, uh, mm -hmm. basically. But uh -huh. in the absence of that, we're stuck. Uh, I've been a longtime proponent of term limits for Supreme Court justices, in part to take away from the imbalance that's caused just by accident and actuarial tables, um, that one president can have a term where there are no justices uh, to uh, vacancies to fill, and another can have two, three, or four. And if you had 18-year, single 18-year terms staggered so that each president would have two vacancies uh, to fill, uh, you would take away some of the uh, tension surrounding confirmation, where now you know you can get people uh, as we have in their early 40s who get uh, chosen for the court and could be there for uh, four or five decades. Um, and at the same time, you would more closely tailor the court to what voters have wanted, uh, at least broadly, in terms of the direction of the country. The fact is now, Kavita, we have a court that is going against the grain of public opinion in a broad way, not because the Constitution absolutely demands it, but because of their own ideological and partisan preferences. You know, the gun decisions, uh, we have 80 plus percent, almost 90 percent of Americans who favor uh, universal background checks. That includes gun owners. We have overwhelming support for these uh, red flag laws uh, that can, uh, you know, basically keep people who have a history uh, or a predilection for doing something dangerous from getting guns. We have uh, overwhelming, uh, almost two thirds public support for getting rid of these uh, assault style military weapons. And it doesn't matter. We have a constitution that makes it very clear when it comes to the separation of church and state. And we had six justices who just voted that taxpayer money can be used to subsidize religious schools from a case in Maine. Although uh, we're going to get a test case at some point. Uh, I can imagine in Maine that uh, we'll see a madrasa put up by a very fundamentalist uh, uh, Islamic group. And somehow the court uh, or the uh, law there is going to say, well, not them. Uh, we didn't mean those kinds of uh, religions. And of course, we also have, getting back to the abortion decision, a group of uh, reformed Jews in Florida who filed a lawsuit because the court, this court has been so clear on religious freedom that religious groups, based on their religious tenets, can discriminate against gay people and in other ways. Uh, saying our religious tenets make it very clear that abortion should be allowed in the case uh, of the uh, threat to the death or health of the mother. And my guess is that this court is going to say, well, we don't mean that kind of religious freedom. It's a court that is making its decisions based on its own ideology with a kind of flimsy connection to the uh, Constitution and uh, the uh, originalist approach. 
And assuming we do get the decision coming down in Dobbs, the abortion case that uh, completely eliminates Roe v. Wade, even if they take some measure that's a little bit short of that, that's the direction in which they're moving. It's not that we're suddenly going to have, well, okay, states can do whatever they want. In Michigan, for example, there's a 1931 law that goes right back into place that makes all abortions illegal and criminalizes them. And that includes the life of the mother, uh, rape, incest, and other ways. We're going to have a kind of turmoil in the country that in no way reflects what the public wants or what is well-established precedent. And getting back to Susan Collins uh, saying, bending over backwards, that Neil Gorsuch told her, well, he wrote a book on the importance of stare decisis and precedence. Of course, he's going to be sensitive to that. And Kavanaugh reassured me that he cares about uh, the history and precedence. It's very clear that those were lies and that that no longer matters at all. And the court has made it very clear that precedent doesn't matter to them because they're going to move the country in a very different and radical direction. How will the country stand for that? That is not what our form of government is supposed to be doing. So, Norm, just again, I'm trying to remain, I, I'm constantly coming to this topic, uh, interestingly enough, more emotional than I am about even topics that I should get more emotional about, but I, it's just so hard for me. So what I'm going to do is go back to statistics, something I rely upon to, to ground me in my life. And I thought was something that popped on uh, my reading screen that listeners might be interested in. Uh, two things, 97% of uh, almost 900 judges polled uh, actually said that they supported a Supreme Court ethics code. And that Congress is also as part of this like never ending search I have for finding Supreme Court reforms that Congress could actually consider. There's actually consideration supposedly about legislation requiring the Supreme Court to adopt one. I want to remind listeners of something that Justice Roberts said in 2011, since words matter to us, that the court had, quote, no reason to adopt an ethical code because, quote, every justice seeks to follow high ethical standards, close quote. Um, and this was done, by the way, the survey was not done by, you know, Democrat justices are us. This was actually done by um, the National Judiciary, this is uh, the NJC, which is one of the nonprofits that actually conducts co kind of ethics of code uh, courses for lower court justices, because that is a requirement. And lower court federal judges are subjected to this code of conduct, but Supreme Court justices technically are not bound by it. Something that has mystified me since the dawn of time and something that, by the way, is across the board, 98% of justices, this is uh, justices, you know, Democrat, Republican, et cetera. And so it's a very, um, and, and I think the point that's brought up by many is that, that even if, uh, that the judiciary could be undermined if the Supreme Court is not held by ethical stand standards. And then some have also argued that, well, even if they were held to such ethical standards, who could enforce a code of ethics? But the fact that we don't even have such a code that the Supreme Court lives by, and I wonder, I have to wonder, you know, fast forward 11 years, is Justice Roberts reconsidering his words about whether or not the justice is, every justice is following high ethical standards. But, you know, that's another, I think that's for another debate. So I will, I'll close this out uh, and just say, thank you for joining us. Uh, and as we're relaunching this show, it'd be incredibly helpful. Uh, we've been reading through some of your comments and trying to make changes and iterate, but it'd be great if you could rate and review and also subscribe to this on your, on our podcast and on your favorite podcast player. We're available on all of those medium. We also hope you'll share the episode with your friends on social media. 
And if you like this member, if you like this episode and want to become a member to have more of our conversation, join us on the DSR network so you can get the bonus segment uh, that we're actually going to talk about with some late breaking Supreme Court news. And, and hopefully this is if, if you join us on the DSRnetwork.com, you can get that along with some other nice additional bonuses. And just to remind you, Words Matter is a production of the DSR Network. Our executive producer is Chris Cotnoir, and the producer of Words Matter is Grant Haber. 